go on your knee um, and keep social distance and all the rest of it, uh, they've clearly gone and now uh, joined uh, the demonstrations, not just have a stall, but actually take part. Uh, clearly there's a tension in that organisation and on the left in general um, between taking a lead in trade union uh, struggles such as the NEU, um, you know, no back to school until it's safe and uh, we've got to have social distancing and that campaign which the SWP participated in and then breaking the law, uh, remember, by taking part in these demonstrations. Now, it's not a question of risking arrest. I think it's very unlikely uh, that the police would arrest tens of thousands uh, of people. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, uh, clearly, um, when you go on a demonstration, uh, even if you attempt uh, to keep social distance, your chances of doing so, I think, are reasonably safe to say, they are nil. Um, okay. Um, Oxford, uh, Oriel College, Cecil Rhodes. Okay, he wasn't pulled down, but uh, it's a good decision that the college authorities have um, at last conceded to uh, demands. They say they will consider these demands. They say he will go. Uh, that is a victory. That's something that uh, uh, students in Oxford and others in Oxford have been campaigning for for some considerable time. Um, there are plenty of other statues. I'm not fanatical uh, about removing every statue and um, uh, every symbol. If you did, uh, I think you'd be sort of pulling down half the buildings uh, in official uh, Britain. Uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, architecture reflects uh, the class that sponsors uh, these buildings and these monuments, and the ruling class has been tied up um, since the origins of uh, a built environment in Britain with slavery, with serfdom, uh, with wage slavery and in imperialist exploitation of uh, uh, the so-called peripheral uh, uh, countries, peripheral to capitalism. Uh, that's what we're talking about. So Cecil Rhodes, famous uh, imperialist, made his money uh, in diamonds, and in uh, cheating uh, people out of vast swathes of uh, uh, land. Um, and yes, like many um, imperial politicians, like many uh, slave traders, like many exploiters, then want to uh, project an image of uh, enlightenment and generosity and philanthropy. Um, so hence uh, the scholarships in uh, Oxford and uh, the monuments to uh, the man himself. Um, I think that in terms of um, discussion on um, COVID-19, we've clearly got the question of class. Uh, the question of uh, race has also been introduced, and I don't think you can easily separate the two. So when we have uh, statistics uh, about uh, black men um, four more, ti four more ti times likely to die uh, if they get uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, than uh, uh, white males, uh, that clearly tells you something. Now that can tell you something about individual racism by doctors or ambulance crew, 
uh, I think it actually tells us something more fundamental about the actual structure of society itself. Um, in the United States, of course, from a pretty early period, uh, the question of race uh, and slavery went hand in hand. Uh, after the initial two or three generations, um, slaves became, to all intents and purposes, exclusively black. Uh, to be black was a slave. Uh, to be a slave was to be black. And even when we saw the freeing uh, of slaves, uh, we saw the perpetuation um, of the slave system, not least after the end of uh, Reconstruction and the imposition of uh, Jim Crow legislation uh, in the South. So uh, blacks had the vote, except uh, if you dared to try to exercise that right, uh, it was basically to risk one's life. Uh, society was segregated uh, to all intents and purposes. It was an apartheid society, but a rural uh, society. So blacks would be sharecroppers, uh, and they would basically be, um, how should I put it, subordinated uh, by their previous uh, owners. Obviously, that started to change, uh, and it fundamentally started to change when uh, you had blacks going north uh, and joining the industrial working class um, um, in uh, the north. That didn't mean uh, that it was easy to vote. It didn't mean that people didn't live in segregated uh, uh, areas, but in terms of the old form of exploitation, i.e. basically a continuation of slavery, um, no, we had wage uh, slavery. Okay, um, Britain, I think, has to be treated differently, uh, but not that much differently. Uh, the fact that the matter is that if we take um, most uh, people um, from a Caribbean uh, background, most people came uh, to Britain following uh, World War II, introduced uh, uh, into Britain. Why? Because of a, a labour shortage. And they tended uh, to occupy positions at the bottom end of the working class. So just like in the United States, uh, blacks going from the south to the north, tended to uh, occupy a bottom position in the working class. The same was true in Britain. And this really also brings me on to the question, therefore, of police racism and police violence. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that what you've got is uh, um, police racism. I think that that's uh, uh, something that is inevitable and will be spontaneously uh, reproduced. Given the structure of the working class in countries like Britain and countries like uh, the United States, I can guarantee you uh, that when the police force was first invented in Britain in the 1820s, you know, famously, uh, you've got Robert Peel, Sir Robert Peel and the Peelers, uh, they would have been institutionally, to use a phrase, uh, anti-Irish Catholic. Why? Because Irish Catholics would have been at the bottom end uh, of the working class. The job of the police is to exercise social control. Who are the most uh, rebellious? Who are the least law-abiding when it comes to street uh, crime? Clearly those at the bottom end of society. 
It's not that the middle classes or the ruling classes are law-abiding, it's just that their crime takes a different form. Um, and uh, uh, the job of the average police uh, uh, constable is to control the bottom end of the working class. So those that are um, uh, talking about uh, disproportionate uh, uh, killings uh, by the police in the United States are absolutely correct. But what we would raise, as well as individual uh, um, police uh, racism, is the very class structure uh, of society uh, itself. Um, and from our point of view, um, while you would stand for legal equality, um, uh, we actually would go further and say what we stand against is the existing social uh, division of society uh, into classes. So we're not calling for, um, you know, equal black representation, uh, oh. I don't know, in big business or on boards uh, of companies. Uh, uh, our aim uh, is to actually uh, bring companies under democratic uh, control, not to uh, promote uh, a black uh, um, ruling class or, or a black middle class. Uh, and in that sense, because most uh, black people, most so-called BAME uh, people are at the bottom end of society, what we would stress is class unity. Uh, that doesn't mean we ignore the question of race. It doesn't mean that we are colour-blind uh, to particular forms of oppression. Uh, but we do stress our commonality and our common interest in actually getting rid of capitalist uh, society, not getting rid of, um, um, how should you put it, uh, uh, capitalist um, discrimination uh, against uh, various sections of the population. Uh, we don't want a situation, in other words, of where we're handing over um, the white working class, uh, for example, to the Tories or to the right, um, the, the Trumpites in the United States, uh, for example. Just getting into the more um, esoteric uh, questions of, um, I won't use the word race, but um, in this case, religion, uh, the Jewish Chronicle had, a, I thought, quite an interesting report on uh, the fact uh, that if you were a Jewish male, uh, you were twice as likely to die of COVID-19 than if you were a Christian uh, male. They're working from um, statistics from the 2011 census. I don't remember filling it in myself, but apparently one of the boxes uh, they asked you to tick was religion. And so those that ticked, I am Jewish, I'm not saying that caused them to be twice as likely to die, but those people are twice as likely to die uh, than if you tick male and I'm Christian. Uh, why is that? Uh, I would actually um, suggest that it's very unlikely to be uh, anti-Semitism. I don't think um, that we're dealing with a situation of where Jews in Britain are so discriminated against uh, that because they get uh, COVID-19, they're twice as likely to die than if you're Christian. I had to scratch my head over this one, and I'm not saying I've got the answer. Uh, I certainly haven't, because I haven't looked at the breakdown of these statistics. 
one possibility could be uh, the age profile uh, of the Jewish population uh, in Britain. Another factor could actually be, uh, and again, this is me just speculating, so maybe I shouldn't do it, but maybe it's the ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish population, such as in uh, uh, North London, because if you look at them, um, what you've got is very large families, very large uh, households, and they are not uh, rich by any stretch uh, of the imagination. So maybe uh, they uh, are bearing a particular burden here when it comes to deaths. I, I do note at the in the early stages of the uh, COVID uh, pandemic, the Israeli authorities um, uh, actually had a huge problem in dealing with the ultra-Orthodox section of the population in Israel itself, because they refused to observe lockdown, uh, for example. Um, I haven't heard any stories about that uh, in Britain anyway. I'm uh, treading on thin ice and don't want to go any further uh, with that one. All I'm really trying to point to is that these things are complex, uh, and I would agree here with the Jewish Chronicle, because it actually said, well, the reason for this uh, is to do with social position. Um, they didn't elaborate, um, so I'm left uh, just saying, well, it clearly isn't about the social position of Jews in Finchley or Hampstead or Hendon. Uh, it must be somewhere else. It could be age, because age is the decisive factor. So I think that if you're over 65, you're something like 24 times more likely to die uh, than if you're of the working, you know, the official working age population. Something that will be good news for all of us, I presume that we're all here signed up atheists from an early age. If you ticked, uh, I have no religion in your 2011 census, you are the lowest likely to die. You're below average, so you are going to do better on average. I know that doesn't matter as an individual, but you're going to do better on average than those that signed up as Christian, Muslim, Hindu, uh, or Jewish. Good news for all of us, I hope. Okay. Why that is, I don't know. Um... It could be education, that we lot who are atheists are more educated. It could be uh, that uh, nowadays, and we're talking, remember, about 2011, uh, that young people sort of shrug their shoulders and go, uh, I'm not religious, I don't know. Uh, but whatever it is, uh, there you are, that's something to think about. Um, when I read in Socialist Worker uh, that Black Lives Matter is a threat to the system. I sort of agree on one level uh, that, yes, uh, this does pose a challenge to the system. It does raise, in my view, a very healthy discussion uh, about the history of uh, capitalism um, in general, British capitalism uh, in particular, how it was bound up uh, with not only the slave trade directly uh, in terms of slave trading, uh, but also dealing with the southern states of the USA. So I'm talking about post-independence, uh, uh, that the southern states were to all intents and purposes neo-colonies uh, of British uh, capitalism. 
And um, although uh, Britain abolished uh, uh, the slave trade, it didn't abolish trade with slave states. Um, either way, having said that, and I think there's uh, something tremendously healthy uh, about looking at that history, it's worth looking, and I did, uh, at an article on Black Lives Matter published in The Sun. And I thought, oh, well, here we go. Uh, this will be um, terrible movement. Winston Churchill, our history, uh, our proud uh, British heritage, uh, and all the rest of it. And I was somewhat flabbergasted because uh, this was um, on Saturday. And what it was is The Sun telling its readers... Uh, when, where, and what to wear when you go on a Black Lives Matter demonstration. And it wasn't about mobilising the so-called statue uh, defenders. This was about people actually going on uh, Black Lives Matter marches. So apparently uh, there was a black tie uh, march uh, in London. I presume that actually means a black tie uh, and not a white tie. Um, either way, uh, those going on that particular demonstration uh, were told to dress up in, um, you know, uh, the full gear. Um, 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 so the sun was telling them what time that demonstration was, where it was leaving from. But it also told you about the other demonstrations and made the point that there, for those other demonstrations, there was no dress code. So clearly what we've got going on is a radical, spontaneous movement from below, but we've also got moves from the top to incorporate uh, that movement as well as uh, um, um, other elements uh, in the political establishment that want to denounce and uh, fight that movement um, head on. So it's a complex uh, question. It isn't one or the other. Uh, what we have is uh, a movement that is being fought for in, to, in terms of who exercises hegemony. It might seem that the left has an open goal, uh, but the fact of the matter is that the ruling class has money, it has uh, um, positions, it has grants, it has uh, promotion uh, to give away. And it is very easy uh, for the ruling class uh, to bribe directly or indirectly leaders uh, of such uh, uh, movements. And clearly that is uh, the agenda, at least of um, some sections of um, the establishment, and indeed I'd say very wide sections of the establishment. I've already quoted the Sun. Um, just lastly, on COVID-19, we have the government abandoning its uh, much-vaunted um, uh, computer uh, technology to, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, trace infections and go over to the Apple-Google uh, version that's been available for a long time that's used in Europe. Uh, I have to say, I think this is a humiliation. Uh, uh, for uh, uh, the government, um, but then so much of what the government has done has smacked of incompetence, uh, such as the initial decision to go for lockdown was clearly taken too late. It should have been taken a week, at least two weeks perhaps, earlier uh, in terms of what's going on now. Clearly the lockdown is uh, disintegrating.
And there's huge pressure on the government, not only from Black Lives Matter demonstrators, but also from the airline business, from the so-called hospitality uh, business to, to open up. And in, in that sense, if we look at Black Lives Matter and uh, their illegal demonstrations uh, and big business, there's a certain um, coincidence of uh, interest uh, uh, here. Um, anyway, humiliation from for the government on that question. In the United States, we have the sacking, and uh, I'm not resigning until I'm properly replaced, of uh, Jeffrey Berman. This is obviously in the British sense, in the context of uh, him wanting to question Andrew Windsor, um, Prince, um, and over the Epstein uh, uh, business, and what did he know and what did he do? Um, clearly, well, in my view at least, it's clear that it's the Andrew side uh, that's been doing the leaks here. Uh, I don't think it's the U.S. Uh, legal system uh, that is doing that. But why has this guy been sacked? Is it because uh, Trump loves uh, QE2 so much and uh, doesn't want to see her favourite son uh, dragged in front of the courts? It doesn't seem likely as an explanation. Much more likely is amongst the, the cases that Berman is investigating is one Juli Rudy Giuliani, uh, uh, Trump's uh, lawyer. Um, Trump would not take kindly to that. Talking about Trump, uh, we have the John Bolton book. It has bolted. Uh, the courts can't, won't close it down. Um, in the age of the internet, it's virtually impossible uh, to do that. All you need is a couple of copies and it will be reproduced. It will be commented upon and, uh, yeah, it will be all over the planet. Uh, so uh, in terms of the book, well, quite frankly, I'm not going to go out and buy it. Uh, from the, re the reviews that I've read, it basically tells us what we know. So if I quote um, three things about Trump, you will recognize it instantly. Trump is erratic. Trump is impulsive. Trump is stunningly uh, uninformed. So we have uh, uh, Bolton having a giggle uh, about Trump thinking that uh, Finland uh, is part of Russia. Well, it used to be, of course, uh, before 1917. Um, and that uh, he didn't know, apparently, that Britain uh, is nuclear armed. Well, sort of, it isn't. Uh, its uh, Trident missiles are American, uh, and there's an American finger on the button. Uh, it takes two to launch a Trident missile. Uh, either way, uh, the fact remains that he is uh, stunningly uh, ill-informed. He is erratic. He, he is impulsive. And that's what makes him particularly uh, dangerous. Having spoken um, about his impulsiveness, clearly when he saw riots in Minneapolis and uh, other such places, he was itching uh, to get uh, the regular army involved, not just the National Guard. And what we had, I think, is a very significant rebellion, first of all, by the former Secretary uh, of uh, Defence, but also then by the serving Secretary uh, of Defence. But also what we saw is generals 
coming onto the media saying that this is not a good idea. And uh, clearly, in terms of the army, we need to understand the U.S. Army, um, that it is multiracial, uh, but it's recruited on the basis uh, not uh, any longer of the draft, not on the basis of uh, patriotism, uh, but in the same way as the British Army is recruited, uh, and I'm talking about the rank-and-file soldiers here, it's recruited on the basis of economics. And therefore, uh, both in the draft system, but also in the economic system, uh, you get a massive disproportion, uh, uh, disproportionate number of black soldiers in the army. And the American um, high command will be acutely aware of how unreliable the U.S. Army became uh, in the Vietnam War uh, to the point of where soldiers were fragging uh, uh, their officers, which means shooting them in the back or lobbying, uh, lobbying a uh, hand, hand grenade uh, in their uh, direction. It's also worth noting, if you look up our back issues, um, actually a very good article um, on this question was written by one Jim Moody, uh, who um, uh, did some very useful research, okay, on the back of other very useful research, on rank-and-file soldiers' paper, papers in the American Armed Forces uh, during the Vietnam War. Um, these were uh, papers produced by ex-soldiers, but also serving soldiers, and they tended to be on a national or base uh, level. But they were radical, uh, they were against the war, and crucially, of course, they were for civil rights and um, 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 against the oppression of uh, the black population in the United States. You know, why are we fighting in Vietnam for democracy when we don't have democracy where we live was a, a constant refrain. Well, after the end of the Vietnam War, the American high command went in uh, for positive discrimination and went in to try to uh, integrate uh, its rank-and-file soldiers. So the idea of this army, uh, with a huge number of uh, uh, black GIs being put onto the streets of U.S. cities, uh, I think was not uh, considered a good idea by U.S. generals, because I think that it would be true to say that this would be putting the loyalty uh, of these GIs to a severe test, and you could have seen uh, acts of um, rebellion, uh, refusal to shoot pe upon people, uh, a sympathy uh, for those that uh, are on the other side. That is one of the reasons uh, why uh, the British uh, establishment has been so unwilling uh, to use troops on the street. Uh, I was telling some comrades earlier that in my own family background, my grandfather uh, was a professional sailor. This is uh, um, World War One and after. Uh, and he told me a story when I was very young um, about sailors being disembarked in South Wales and issued with rifles. And uh, this was going to be, they were going to be used against uh, striking miners. And they refused to pick up the rifles and they just marched them back uh, uh, onto the uh, bases. Um, uh, the army tends to be less reliable 
than the police force, and they know that. Uh, and the rank and file army and the regular army in America will be less politically reliable than the National Guard, uh, who are volunteers, um, and volunteers more out of the sense of what they would view as patriotism uh, rather than economic necessity. So, again, we see a tension uh, between Trump's instinct uh, and almost relishing the prospect of using the army uh, and the army high command uh, not wanting uh, uh, to put itself in such a crisis uh, situation, because that would be the danger. Okay, just very briefly now... Um, India versus China. Uh, clearly, this is not about some scrap of land um, on some high um, um, Himalayan mountain. Uh, this is about geopolitics. And uh, this is about uh, China and its uh, uh, Belt and Road program. So if you note where these clashes have happened, uh, this is the intersect uh, between China, India, uh, and Pakistan, and it's uh, um, an intersect between Indian-controlled Kashmir. Uh, so once you say Kashmir, that's disputed uh, territory. The majority of its population are Muslim. The reason why it's in India is the decision of a prince. A prince uh, decided, not a referendum, uh, not a democratic assembly, uh, but an individual decided, I will be in uh, uh, India. Um, but also, of course, there's been a long-standing tension uh, between India and China. There's been a number of border wars, 62-75. In 62, the border war there uh, led to the splitting of the Communist Party of India and uh, the majority of uh, the Communist Party of India, or the majority of official communists in India, ended up in the Communist Party of India, Marxist. Not a Maoist organisation. Uh, people often make that mistake. This was not a Maoist organisation. This organisation split from the official communists because the Soviet Union and the official communist party did not support a socialist state in a war against a capitalist state. That was their reasoning. Um, and there were other splits of that sort in other parts of the world. As people might know um, Ivor, who sometimes comes along to our face-to-face -face meetings in London. Uh, that's his uh, political origins. Uh, obviously in India we're talking about significant numbers. The Communist Party of India used to be a very sizable force. It's much reduced now, and that includes <coughs> CPIM. But in terms of world politics, we need to understand, first of all, that China is vastly richer than India and vastly more powerful than India militarily, but both sides are nuclear armed. And clearly Modi's India uh, will make a pivot in the direction of the United States. That's something the United States has been pursuing, and clearly this latest clash uh, given the tension between the United States and China, will push Modi in the direction of the United States. I noticed just looking at the pictures that a lot of Indian military hardware, planes for example, are um, either Soviet era or Russian. 
uh, in the future, I would expect them to be um, US. Um, okay, that's that. Two more things. Mark Regev, um, Israeli ambassador uh, to Britain, is stepping down. I don't know if he's pursuing um, a higher and greater um, um, uh, uh, office. I just haven't got a clue. Anyway, he's resigning uh, and he's being replaced. You have to forgive my uh, pronunciation. My pronunciation usually on most things is bloody awful. So I'm going to sort of stumble my way through. We've got a new ambassador coming. Sipsy Hot Evely. Anyway, that's the best you're going to get out of me. Anyway, she is described as a religious right winger. I've been told that she's a member of Le Coud. Um She might be a member of uh, one of the religious right wing parties. Either way, um, her uh, present position is actually in government. So is this a demotion being sent to London? I, 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 don't, I don't know enough, so I'm not going to push uh, uh, things. Either way, she's the new ambassador. And um, her position in the Israeli government is settlements minister. And uh, her line is, we should stop apologizing, uh, you know, about Palestine and the settlements. It's all ours. All of it's ours. Um, I.e., um, all of pre-mandate Palestine uh, belongs to uh, the global uh, Jewish community. That's how she uh, would put it. Uh, in reality, of course, the, the truth is that what she wants is a greater Israel. Um, that, in reality, has also been the um, program of Zionism from the beginning. Um, from the beginning... Uh, their aim was never uh, to live side by side uh, with the native population and a land that was shared, even a land that was divided uh, between two peoples. It was to uh, have all of um, Israel, um, and it was to dispossess uh, the natives. Uh, that has been the program of Zionism since uh, the 1890s. And uh, those Zionists, like Labour Zionists and uh, so-called left-wing Zionists, uh, uh, either lie uh, about their aims uh, or, ju or, or just naive uh, in terms of the reality um, of the Zionist uh, project. Um, if you wanted to be an extreme Zionist, I don't think this is practical politics, uh, and he wanted to look to the extent of uh, mythical uh, Israel, i.e. in the Bible. If you look at Solomon's kingdom, purportedly it spread from the Nile to the Euphrates. Uh, but clearly that is not a practical project. Uh, there's no way uh, that that program could be carried out. But a program that ethnically cleanses is uh, the majority of the existing Palestinian uh, population that may be um, uh, takes away the citizenship rights of Israeli Arabs. Uh, that is real politics for today. And just note uh, that uh, next month, so only a few weeks away, uh, Israel has U.S. permission uh, to go in for the annexation uh, of the West Bank of the Jordan Valley, uh, as well as the settlements uh, that it's planted uh, since 1967. 
interestingly, uh, the appointment of this new ambassador plus uh, the um, uh, possibility of a new wave of uh, ethnic cleansing and annexations has promoted uh, the likes of Simon Sharma, Luciana Berger, Sir Malcolm Rifkin uh, to protest. Uh, they've got an organization that's been around for a couple of years. I hadn't heard of it uh, before. Obviously, I don't read Jewish Chronicle uh, uh, enough. Uh, but it's called Namod, which I think means in Hebrew, stand up or something along those lines. People who know Hebrew, maybe someone does, can tell me if I'm right or wrong. But they initially wrote uh, a letter to um, Mark Regeff, um, and they collected, I think, 40 signatures. These aren't just 40, any old people. These are the, the great and good of liberal Zionism. Uh, but since then, they've, uh, uh, their petition has grown to 300 uh, of the great and good of liberal Zionism. I have to uh, admit that I'm somewhat uh, perplexed uh, by their statement because they complain both about the new ambassador but also about the oppression of uh, Palestinians. And they talk about Israel's blatant disregard for human rights uh, is causing increasing numbers of people to realize that it's time to take a stand. So they object uh, to the annexations, uh, they object to the settlements, uh, they object uh, to the uh, oppression of the Palestinians, and yet they still would call themselves Zionists. I suspect uh, that the Israeli government would call them naive, uh, and I have to concur with that view. Uh, as I've already indicated, to me, Zionism goes hand in hand with the oppression of the native population and the dispossession of the native uh, population. It's not about exploiting the native population, it's about removing uh, the native population. In other words, we have a settler colony um, in um, Israel. Um, showing that the uh, so-called community, and I'm now talking about the Zionist community, is split, we have the statement by Marie van der Zyl. She's, I think, the chair of the Board of British uh, Deputies, saying that um, uh, we're delighted uh, to work with the next Israeli ambassador. And so, just to finish that point, worth noting uh, that the existing Israeli government is a grand coalition. It includes parties from the far right, the religious right, it includes, obviously, Likud as the biggest party, but it also includes uh, Benny Gantz's uh, blue and white, but it also includes what's left of the Israeli Labour Party, and all those parties are signed up to Trump's deal of the century, i.e. Uh, the annexation of more Palestinian uh, territory, and presumably uh, the expulsion of more Palestinian uh, people. Um, so will Israel go for annexation before the presidential elections? Will it wait to see what the results of the presidential election are? I don't know. I'm not able uh, to judge. That will be decided by international politics, international signals, uh, but also internal Israeli politics. All you can say, though, 
is that any annexation will clearly be extraordinarily dangerous, dangerous given the fragile nature uh, of politics in the Middle East. Lastly, uh, going back to Black Lives Matter, clearly, although the SWP says that Black Lives Matter is a threat to the state, they, they can see what you can see and what I can see, and that is also the attempt by the establishment to incorporate, to domesticate uh, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And so, in respect to that, the SWP wants to pose uh, radical uh, in front of uh, that movement. So I was reading an article in the latest edition of Socialist Worker, uh, which, you know, caught my fancy, and I thought, oh, this, is, this looks interesting. And it said, uh, so we want to abolish the police. So I thought, this is really good, because uh, they're talking about the movement in the United States to disinvest uh, in the police force so that local uh, governors and uh, um, mayors uh, should stop financing uh, the police force and look to uh, other institutions to maintain order. They're saying this is very good, this is very welcome. Uh, they make the point uh, that the police force tends to deal with the bottom end of society. That's what your average constable uh, is all about. They, they say, well, they don't really do much in terms of crime. They only solve 7.8% of reported crimes. Uh, and you go, well, yeah. Um, so what are you going to do if you abolish the police force? Will crime stop? And then you get to the nub of it. And what they say is we'll abolish the police force under socialism. So what we have here is a radical demand. I'm not disagreeing with it, by the way, uh, but not about now. So the SWP, when it comes to Britain, isn't calling for the government to cease financing the police force. Local government doesn't control and doesn't finance the police force anymore. Those days have long gone. It doesn't call even for the restoration of local control uh, over the police force. Um, from our point of view, we don't consider the police force uh, to be a, a fact of life. It hasn't been around forever. Uh, it's not something that we link uh, with the nature of capitalism itself. So there was a, a period where there was no police force. Uh, the police force was invented in its modern form uh, famously, of course, by Robert Peel in the 1820s, uh, and that model was copied uh, uh, elsewhere. Uh, we call for the abolition of the police force today. We call for the abolition of the standing army uh, today, and we call uh, for the arming of the people. Uh, that is not a socialist demand, it's a democratic uh, uh, demand. We don't want bodies of armed men use the old terminology, separate from the general population. We believe in self-policing. Uh, um, uh, we don't believe in a professional army. Uh, we believe in a people's militia. And of course, what you can see uh, with um, a lot of our um, left-wing comrades is a confusion uh, that's born of uh, Trotsky's transitional programme 
the so-called transitional method. And I think you can see that illustrated in the letter in this week's Weekly Worker by Jerry Downing, as well as talking a load of usual nonsense about Lenin in 1917 and Lenin denouncing Korsky in a letter to Shlapnikov and ignoring Lenin and his remarks about Korsky and left-wing communism in 1920 and all the rest of it. When poor old Jerry comes to the question of the militia, he says it's a reformist demand. Ha! Huh, we don't raise demands like that. Uh, we're far too radical. Oh, but I, as a reformist demand, it has no traction, has no importance for today. Well, I absolutely, totally reject that. Uh, the SWP's uh, abolish the police call is a correct demand for today, not only under socialism, uh, but under capitalism. The demand for a people's militia uh, uh, is something that's relevant for today. Note the Labour Party. The, the Labour Party in Britain, uh, its first manifesto, its first general election manifesto included that demand. Uh, and I'm not saying that shows you how radical uh, the British Labour Party was. This was the demand of the French Revolution. This was the demand of the American Revolution. It was the demand of bourgeois Democrats. And what we've seen, of course, over history is the retreat uh, of the bourgeoisie uh, away from democracy. Uh, the left should learn uh, to take up the weapon of democracy, consistent democracy, once again. That's it.